There is truth. You can know it, live it, and be liberated by it. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher. Thank you for joining me on this podcast where we explore how the truth can set you free. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher. I've got some fun things for us to talk about today. Before I get into that, I wanted to let all of you know that we've been filling up the Audrey Rinlisbacher library with more tools and resources. We have um, have not released them into the library yet, but coming pretty soon, the Mission Driven Mom Level 1 will be released, and then not too long after that, the Mission Driven Mom Academy Level 2 will be released. And we're working on the teen programs. Eventually, hopefully sometime this year, we'll get Adore Your Spouse in there. Filling that up, we're going to be... Um, Making, letting you know about that if you don't belong to the email list and you want to be notified when these things are available, go over to audreyrinlisbacher.com and you can actually get your Truth Seeker Starter Kit if you would like to, but you can definitely opt in to the email list and I will keep you posted when those things become available. We'll keep doing, um, of course, the principal-centered study skills are in there, learning skills. We've got... Um, master classes, principles of discernment, principles of um, uh, mother, mothers of principle, mothers of discernment, mothers of vision. We've also got the 28 days of inspiration master class and principles of liberty master class. We've got um, the community where you're welcome to ask any questions or discuss anything at any time. And we've got the book club. We recommend a book every month. We post the discussion here and have a reading guide for you. So really great things going on there, but it's going to keep being stacked with all of this wonderful content that will help you to build a more principle-centered life and a more principle-centered home and give you tools to engage in lifelong learning in a much more deep and meaningful way and to bring your family on that journey with you, but especially to understand the nature of principles, be able to identify actionable principles and be able to act on them, put your life in order and have the truth make you free. That's what we're doing over here. And of course, uh, I talked about diving into the concept of the natural law in a more intentional way. And I've got a lot of things coming up, some things that I've been writing and working on that I'll be sharing with you in the weeks and months to come. Really interesting stuff. But today we're going to spend just a few minutes talking about talking about the nature of natural law as it aligns with societies and civilizations. And I know that sounds like really... Um, maybe uninteresting or unimportant, but it hits right at the very heart of the kind of family that you're building, the kind of community that you're building, what's happening in our culture. It's going to help you make sense of a, a whole lot of stuff. So I want to start out by having you think about any organization or institution that you've ever belonged to. A business, church, nonprofit organization, a family, a, you know, whatever that might be, a rotary club, whatever. And I want you to kind of stop and think for a minute about what makes an institution an institution? What makes an organization an organization? What holds it together? What helps everyone know how they're 
supposed to behave in this institution. Like there might be something that a business does, maybe they make t-shirts, but why, why do the people in that business, what are they working towards? What's holding them together? How do they know how to behave within this company? What's okay, what's not okay? How they're supposed to act and interact with others? And how do the people in that organization or institution know what it's all for, what they're working toward, why these t-shirts matter? The answer is very simple. It's shared values. The best organizations and institutions have clearly defined values that they communicate well and they hold everybody accountable to them. I've been through a lot of business books and I've been to a lot of business trainings and had business coaching. And I'm telling you, writing down your company values, getting them clear, having a short, concise list, posting them on the wall of the company. You know, this kind of goes back to Covey and the, you know, company mission statements that he was always encouraging people to do. They're always going to tell you those values are key. They're foundational. They're fundamental. Because everybody has to align around something. And they have to know what it is that this thing is all about, why it matters, how, how we're behaving in the world, what is our shared cause and vision. You know, Start With Why by Simon Sinek is a good example of how shared values unite the people in the organization and they attract people with like values to that organization. Because Really, when you market well, you're marketing your values, not your product. And people buy your product because they have the same values as you. And because they share your values and they want the things that you want, then they come and buy whatever that product or service is. Now, society is no different. This is exactly how societies and civilizations work. Shared values are what make it work. You know, families that are functional or families that are dysfunctional do or do not have shared values that are articulated, that are clear, that everyone's held accountable to. So, you know, values is something that we talk about quite a bit in the MDM and MDT academies. And we encourage students to get clear about what they value most so they can live in harmony with their highest values. And that creates inner integrity. And that helps you to love yourself better when you know what you truly stand for and what your core values are. But there's something very, very important about values. You know, you might get online and you might look up a list of values. And there's a lot of different things that people can value. You know, they can value homes and cars, they can value trips, they can, they can value all kinds of things. But true values, I'm going to give you a really good definition here in a second. What it's very vital that you understand is that true values that are at the heart of every good organization and even personal inner integrity, they're objective, they're not subjective. So there's some things that we might use this term as a verb. We might say a person values X, Y, Z, but a value as a noun, the thing, a value, there are only a certain number of values and they are objective. They're part of human nature. They're part of the fabric of who we are. And they're very important to how we live our lives and build our societies. So we're going to talk about that for a few minutes. And I think you're going to really... Um, there's some really fascinating things I want to share with you. So Dietrich von Hildebrand 
gave this really awesome definition of values. He said, only that which is important in itself is a value in its true sense. Values embody the true, the, va the valid, and the objectively important. So a real value is valuable in and of itself, not even necessarily as an end to something else. It's, you're not trying to obtain something else. The value itself is important in itself. This is the case because we know from experience that it doesn't work to simply say you value something and then try to build a life around it. Like, it, what if you say your highest value is money? I actually know someone who valued money and he valued money above everything else. He gave lip service to spiritual values and lip service to family values. But when really called on the carpet and when really asked to choose, money almost always won. And he, he wound up with money, but he also wound up with a broken life. We could perhaps get some people to agree that if something works for you, you should go for it. So like in, in today's modern culture, you know, lots of people tell you that you should value money and money's not bad and it's not the root of all evil. I don't think it is either. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying what they would tell you is, hey, that works for you. It's your truth, right? Like I talked about in my last podcast, it's your truth versus the truth. And that's the same thing with values. We can tell people, hey, you value that, go for it. That's fine. You want to live on the beach and never work, go for it. That's you. That's your truth. But actually, it's not, we're encouraging something to build a life around something that's not a true objective value, which means that it won't bring true enrichment and life fulfillment. In the end, it will be empty. In the end, it, it will be a life that doesn't work because values are objective. And we have to choose values that are worthy of us, that are true objective values, values good in and of themselves. So when we play it out in reality, if we follow the person through life who truly values money above other things, we find a selfish, lonely, unfulfilled person at the end. So that means that not all values are created equal and that some aren't actually truly values. Somebody might say they value something in a verb sense and they're going to go after that thing. Maybe they value the MBA that's fine. They're going to go watch games. That's fine. But as soon as one value bumps up against another, as soon as someone has to make a choice about what they really value, what's really important, other true objective values have to come into play or their life will not be a meaningful one, a rich, fulfilled one. Like so many other areas of life, you might have values but there are some values that are the right values. They're the right things to pursue, whether you want to pursue them or not. And they help you to create goals and objectives and build unity. It's the same way in which Mortimer Adler talks about education and leisure time. And we talk about this in more detail in the MDM and MDT academies. I don't have time to go into it right now, but I'll give you uh, a couple quotes here that you can kind of see the relationship between what we're talking about with values and what we're talking, what he's talking about with leisure. Because he's saying that education, lifelong learning is so that we can use our leisure time properly 
and leisure is a certain kind of thing. So he says leisure, as the result of a liberal education, consists of those intrinsically good activities which are both self-rewarding and meaningful beyond themselves. They can be both good things to do and good in their results, as for example, political activities, the activities of a citizen, are both good in themselves and good in their results because they help you to build a better society. If you're a citizen who truly knows what's going on and active in the political realm in your community and making a difference, that's a good thing for you to do. It's good for you to be aware and to know and to take those actions and to be involved, but it's also good for the community to have someone who cares about the society and is trying to infuse it with better values, better leadership, whatever the case might be. In the same way, values are good in and of themselves. They're, they are the right things to want and the right things to move toward and the right things to build goals and objectives around. So Adler goes on, the results of leisure activity are two sorts of human excellence. This is the same thing. These, same these are the same results as a unified pursuit of true values. Number one, private excellences by which people perfect their own nature and those and two public excellences which can be translated into performance of his moral and political duty in other words the progress and improvement of the personal and the public realm and if you go back to the ancient documents if you go back to the roman documents if you go back to the founders they're always talking about private and public virtue and we'll get into that the connection there in just a second and when you get into these other writings what you find is those are the those are the two things that we want to make the individual the best they can be and the society that we the best that we that it can be and a liberal education makes us helps us understand how to use our extra time when we're not working or sleeping, how to use our leisure time in ways that are personally enriching and societally, societally enriching, and the pursuit of real, true, objective virtues is then becomes the pursuit of virtue. It actually develops virtue, which is the highest good uh, individually and societally. So this is a good way for us to think about values. They're good for us individually and good for society as a whole. They're self-rewarding and perfecting. Think about freedom as a value. It is self-rewarding. Properly understood, it's good for me and for you and for all of us. We can inherently know that it is valuable and work toward it. And we can get united around it and move toward meaningful goals in pursuit of it. And the more properly in alignment with reality that freedom is defined as true liberty, then we can work toward that as a society. And this is what we did in America. We said we value liberty. And even though we weren't living up to that, that value in the highest way, we also had more freedom for more people than there'd ever been. So we were at the pinnacle of giving the greatest amount of liberty to the most number of people. So we were living that value really better than any other civilization. But we also knew that we hadn't met, we hadn't met the demands of that value. And by stating that openly, by putting that in our founding documents and pursuing it aggressively, we eventually, we've for 200 years, we've been moving in that direction and we've been giving more and more true liberty to more and more people. Now, in the last few decades, we're backpedaling. We're going a little bit backward on that, which I won't talk about. I've, I've been doing some research on the history of slavery and that'll be coming out in a little while. 
um, as, as an answer to the objection that there can't be true natural law because people used to have slaves. So we'll talk about that in the future. But just as an example, you can see how uniting around a value, placing that deep in, in, in the core of whatever group it is, and then pursuing it over time makes everybody better. Individuals were better. Individuals are better when they don't aren't slaveholders and individuals are better when they aren't slaves. And so individual virtue was enabled to increase and it should bless our society. We should be more virtuous as a society. In other words, living according to values that perfect our nature and character. In his book, The Idea of God, Kenneth Dobbs begins with this proposition, which I believe to be true and which history bears out and will make more arguments for this as I write more about it and share more about it on the podcast. But here's what he says. There are objective values which civilization must drive toward in order to sustain itself. Finding the objective values which sustain civilization was one of the key goals for Abraham Maslow's studies. Now, I don't have time to get into Abraham Maslow. If you haven't heard of him, he put together the hierarchy of needs, which if you've ever taken a psychology class, you would be familiar with that. We go into more detail on Abraham Maslow in the MDM and MDT academies. And I also help, we also dive into the, into the principle of needs. We're not going to do that right now, but we're going to talk about what he shares from a different book of Abraham Maslow's where he talks about peak experiences. So at the top of the hierarchy of needs, if you go take a look at it, you'll see the concept of self-actualization. And what Abraham Maslow basically, his research started out basically like this. Freud gave us the sick half of psychology. Let's fill in the healthy half. Let's, you know, we need to help people that are mentally ill or suffering or, or, or debilitated in some way, absolutely. But let's find out what happens on the healthy side of psychology. What is the very best possible human we could become? And is that available for most people? And what he nailed down was that the most, what he called self-actualized people had these certain peak experiences that were actually quite transformative and pretty spiritual in nature. And they were a result of living according to certain values, which Abraham Maslow called B values because they were being values. And so what he did was he studied all these incredible people who were very integrous and honest, who were, um, you know, maybe leaders in their field, but it wasn't about success in the human realm in terms of like, you know, really rich people or famous people. It was about people who had immense positive impact where they were and other people really genuinely looked up to them, followed them, thought well of them. These people had a lot of peace in their lives and a lot of uh, positive energy to give out and all these kinds of things. So he had his parameters. You can go read about it if you want. But he had these parameters and he was studying these people. And what he said was, One of his discoveries after studying many of them was that they shared many values in common. In other words, the people who were at, who were, who were the happiest, most fulfilled people living at the peak of humanity, so to speak, were people who had aligned themselves 
with certain universal values. And those values were consistently the same. And they were, as they, as they strove for those values, their lives became more and more attuned. The way that I would talk about this is that they, they aligned with these principles that were reflected in these values and they were set free. They were, um, their lives began to work better and better. And so this self-actualization is where humankind wants to end up. We have these needs and as they're met, we strive for more. And what we're really striving for is to reach our potential, to be the best that we can very, that we can really be. And that was accomplished by living according to certain consistent values. So Dobbs goes on. These values are external, transcendent, and universal to every human being throughout existence. And we actually know that to be the case because in every civilization at its height, you know, in its foundational phase and into its height, there were the same consistent values that were held up. Not always exactly the same for every civilization, but within this, within a spec, with there's a there's a number of them that, that, that were always honored um, consistently. So he says, by analyzing the objective nature of mankind, one can discover the values by which a human being ought to connect to, ought to connect himself properly in reality. Maslow's B values are in line with the traditional natural law theory, which is also found in Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, and Confucius. I want to say that again. Maslow's being values are in line with the traditional natural law theory, which is also found in Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, and Confucius, and many others, but those are some that he cites. So what are we saying here? We're saying that natural law theory, the, the, the concept of the natural moral law or the law of human nature always is aligned with certain values. Those values are consistent across nations and civilizations and across time. And we can see that when we study history and we study the values of these civilizations. So he says, here are Abraham Maslow's first 10 values, which also appear in all major human civilizations when they are in the formative stages and which enable them to grow and thrive. Truth, goodness, beauty. Those are the first three that he lists. And traditionally, those are called the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty, because all of the other values really um, can be underneath those three. If we are seeking the good, the true, and the beautiful, which align with the three part aspects of our nature, then we are truly whole and, and, and reaching our potential. So more that he lists, that Abraham Maslow lists, are wholeness, aliveness, uniqueness, perfection, completion, justice, and order, and simplicity. Even though Maslow was a Jewish atheist, he himself, through his research, saw that there is a spiritual aspect to humankind, a moral aspect, and that aligning with these objective values are what creates the peak experiences, as he called them, of the truly self-actualized person. In fact, what you find in most cultures in history is a focus on virtue as the right human pursuit. And what happens when you recognize proper values and pursue them is that you become virtuous. And I could give you a whole lot of quotes here 
And that's why public and private virtue we talked about a bajillion times in the founding of America and in the founding of other major civilizations. What do we want? We want virtuous people and we want virtuous society. In fact, Dobbs goes, Dobbs goes on. Um, well, I'll talk, I'll talk about that more in just a second, but, and how do you get there? How do you create these virtuous people and this virtuous society? You align yourselves with proper objective values and you pursue those values. It develops your character and you become more and more virtuous, which makes you more and more in line with the true reality of the moral framework. And that elevates you and helps you to transcend the materialist world in the sense that that's not what's mostly the, the highest priority for you. And this in turn helps you reach your potential. And the problem that people have with it is like, so Dobbs says, removing these values from public schools based on, quote, separation between church and state is therefore detrimental to society since these values are what unlock the potential of every human individual. So what we've done in the last 50, 60, 70 years in the United States is we've conflated. So first of all, we said, okay, well, Jefferson said this thing about separation of church and state taken totally out of context. And we said that what that meant was that um, something completely different than the founders meant in the first place. So we're quoting, we're misquoting the founders to say that the founders justified a perception and an approach, which they never intended in the first place. And we could go back to those documents and I could give you some quotes and examples, but ultimately, obviously America was started because people, well, there's two different reasons. It was started in the North and the South for different reasons, which we'll talk about in a future podcast. But for those in the North, the, the, the pilgrims, it was about religious liberty. And that was because of all of the religious wars for a hundred years in England. And they had to escape to Holland. And then they came over to America because, you know, now, now the crown is Catholic. And so they're beating up all of the, you know, everybody else. And then now they're not. And so, you know, now they're, now they're a, uh, an evangelical faith of some kind and they're beating up all the, all the Catholics. So this is why they came here. And this is why in our founding documents, we wrote that we, we needed to have liberty. And this is why they talked about quote, separation of church and state meaning. What does that mean? It means there's not an official state religion. There's no specific religion that everybody has to belong to, or they get, imprisoned or they get fined or they get in trouble or whatever. That's all that it meant. I mean, Benjamin Franklin at one point was really proud because in, I think it was in Philadelphia, they had, were trying to have religious tolerance and, and liberty. And so they used the, um, quote, political governmental buildings. They let different churches use them at different times. They tried to be really fair about that and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, for a long time, government buildings were used for religious services. So this was not what was meant. And so what's happening is that values, objective values and virtue have been conflated with religion that somehow if you're pursuing what's truly moral and right and virtuous, adhering to objectively good values, that somehow that's religious in nature and I think the reason that gets conflated is because it is part of the transcendent moral framework. It's part of the natural law. It's something that's not material or earthy. And so 
Because of that, then you come in and you say, okay, well, we're removing religion from anything that's government funded, and that includes all of our school systems. Well, then now, in today, I mean, I, I have a friend who's trying to establish a charter school, and the superintendent of her school system is telling her that they can't teach values in school because everybody might not have the same values, and that that's just a moral issue that shouldn't be handled at school. Except that if you don't have a school where clear values are stated and the students know what's expected of them and how they're supposed to relate and interact, you don't have any unity. You have discord and chaos. And you're not helping those students to become people of character. So anyway, that's a bit of a tangent. But getting back to this, um, Maslow, like many great thinkers and leaders, points out that we are purpose-driven creatures. And again, on this, I mean, go get my book, The Mission Driven Life. I mean, I could give you a million quotes on how we are not only mission and purpose-driven, but actually having purpose in life is more important to us than being happy. We say that we're pursuing happiness and that that's what we want, but really we need meaning. So that means that we have... We have to have some objective that we're working toward. We need an aim. We need a goal. It's what makes life worth living. The first three values, the goodness, the truth, goodness, and beauty, these transcendentals, have always <laughs> traditionally in, in every civilization really were promoted as the objective for human beings. They are what we seek. They're the things that nurture us. They're the things that we live and die for. So Christopher Dawson was a brilliant historian who researched the founding of dozens of civilizations and followed them through to their collapse. And here's what he said. Every society rests in the last resort on the recognition of common principles and common ideals. And if it makes no moral or spiritual appeal to the loyalty of its members, it must inevitably fall to pieces. So when his work came out, I think in the 20s, hundred years ago, it was just revolutionary. And he had studied in depth dozens of civilizations. And he had drawn the conclusion that seems, you know, very simple as we state it now as it is, but that ultimately key values, common principles, and common ideals are what make any society work. And they create the birth of civilization. And they ground that society on the proper, on reality, on the proper truths, on the moral law. And when they do that, then they grow and they thrive and they reach a peak era. Dobbs goes on, the first big problem of problems of human existence are, number one, how do we create a good person? And number two, how do we form a good society? A good person is someone who discovers their telos or telos. I think you say telos. Uh, that's your goal. That's your objective. That's your aim, which allows them to actualize their innate potential and thus fulfill their human nature. A good society is one which produces good people, meaning it encourages and promotes virtue in its citizens. Maslow noticed that there is a feedback between the good society and the good person. Both are codependent on each other and cause the other to exist and thrive. This is so true in our society today. And the problem is that 
people want to make up their own values and then pursue those and live them out and pretend that this is making them objectively more virtuous. And then we're going along with it. We're ignoring, distorting, or denying the natural moral law, and it's causing us to fail. So we say to someone, just decide what you want and relentlessly pursue it. And that makes you an integrous person of virtue, no matter the aim. Now we do have some, we do have some boundaries still. If it's, if it's pedophilia, that's not okay. If it's murder, that's not okay. If it's theft, that's not okay. But the boundaries have opened wide open in respect in regard to what would have been those parameters 200 years ago at our founding. The, the values that were being pursued were true values, objective values that were worth pursuing. And we hadn't arrived, and I don't think we still have arrived, at living those values perfectly. But that's not the point. The point is, that we, is not that we live the values perfectly. The point is that we're pursuing the values together. We're united in being better at living personally and publicly virtuous lives. And the bottom line is, the truth is, there just are some things that are objectively virtuous. Some things that are objectively virtues and some things that are not. And so this person that I know, I know their whole story very intimately, that pursued money as their highest virtue, did not, as their highest value, did not become a virtuous person. Their personal relationships fell apart. Their health fell apart. They fell into addictive behaviors that eroded their lives and caused mental illness to be brought on more early. And they died way before they should have with broken relationships. Very, very wealthy, but not a whole lot else going on. And you can, you know, just think about this for a little bit. You know, whether it's, whether it's how we're tipping our hats and calling people sex workers and saying that regardless what they do, it's totally fine. You know, whatever those things are that we're saying are okay, they're just not values worth pursuing and they don't make people more virtuous. And the more people in your society that aren't virtuous, the less virtuous your society is. And it's a feedback loop and you begin to decline. Cecil B. DeMille, I use this quote a lot. I absolutely love it. He said, we cannot break the law. We can only break ourselves against the law. So we can't make up our own values and virtues. We'll get into some C.S. Lewis this year and talk about, you know, some things that he shared and his arguments, you know, with Nietzsche about this new morality that, he, that Nietzsche proposed that we make up or, or move toward. It just can't be done. The way that C.S. Lewis puts it is that you can no more make up a new value than you can make up a new primary color. It just can't be done. It's not within the realm of the reality in which we find ourselves. So if truth, goodness, and beauty can be completely redefined, then they never meant anything in the first place. If they're not objective, they don't mean anything. If there aren't some things that are fundamentally true, always true, all the time, always were, always will be, then nothing is true. And we can't keep redefining it and making up what we think it means over and over and over again. We can work within the natural law. We can, we can define our values. And then by trying to live the values, we will learn more about how to live the values. It's like by being a ballerina, you will learn more about how to be a ballerina. You can't really learn more about how to be a, a ballerina on the outside just watching videos. 
There's a whole lot more to it that you have to be in it doing it to understand it on a deep emotional level and to know how to make course corrections to become a great ballerina. Same thing. If they aren't objective within themselves and carry their own definitions and parameters, then all they mean is the things that humans like. And we can make it up as we go. Then what are we really doing? Who are we? What is it to be an American? What are our objective values? What does unite us? Where are we headed? And when you understand those right questions to be asking, it makes a whole lot more sense to you why things seem to be unraveling. This is Dobbs again. Civilizations that have shared this structure, the structure of the natural moral law, the pursuit of the highest values, the civilizations that have shared this structure include Mesopotamia, India, Egypt, Greece, Rome, Jerusalem, the Mayan, the Aztec, North American natives, medieval Europe, and so on. We cannot explain this, these commonalities other than by concluding that there is a universal human nature which has as one of its features a hierarchical order of desires akin to what Maslow described. So I'm going to give you a couple examples from this book and um, so that you can actually see kind of how these things work. Hopefully, I'm going to, I'm going to really um, shorten them. So hopefully you'll still get the gist of them. So the first one that we can look at is um, the Sumerian city-states in 2100 BC. We have a lot of uh, we have enough documentation about the kind of the founding and how this civilization worked. And it's, as we'll see, the first like full-blown what we would call a civilization. Dobbs, Dawson, and other scholars call the Epic of Gilgamesh the foundational myth of the Severian, Sumerian uh, city-states. And what they conclude is that the record, this record, the Epic of Gilgamesh, records the influence of religion on taming mankind to live and dwell in villages rather than nature. And there's a lot of quotes and examples in the Epic of Gilgamesh that go through that. They had a unifying principle. He says, Sumerian villages were theocracies ruled by priest kings who interpreted the laws and dictates of the gods to their people. Everything owned by the community was owned by the gods, and thus the temple area, called the ziggurat, became the economic, political, and cultural center of Sumerian life. The formation and structure of these villages are the ground zero of human civilization. The Neolithic culture of the ancient Sumerians led to the beginning of civilization. It was the first attempt in history to politically, economically, and culturally unite a large territory of human beings. The theocratic conception of, quote, divine sovereignty is arguably one of the most important ideas developed by a human mind. The brilliance to replace the right of conquest with divine authority rather than basing, so what they did was rather than basing the will to rule on the king's might or the opinion of mortal men, the right to rule was in the hand of the tran transcendent gods. This is uh, Dawson. The king was a priest king with whom um, 
the vice-regent of the city god with whom he ultimately came to be identified so that his power rested not on the right of conquest or the choice of the people, but on divine right or the choice of the god, a conception of which is so of enormous importance for subsequent history. So we might look at that and be like, well, Gaul, that's pretty terrible that this divine right of kings, this divine sovereignty, because, you know, it, it's not it's not the strongest person wins, which is not a great way to form a government or a society. And it's also not people deciding who they want to lead them, which is what we're doing now. It seems like kind of like backward and awkward, but it moved, it moved society forward. And here's why, because he goes on, the king was therefore not a military dictator over the villages or a man elected by the populace, but rather he was selected by an immaculate God to be a servant, and here's the point, to be held to the standard of the God. So when you gather a group of people and you say, there is a God and that God has rules and he has parameters and he's appointed me to be your leader, but all of us, including me, have to obey him, then you have the seeds of civilization. Now, today we have a different, we have a different governmental form, right? Today, we, you know, in America, for example, we instituted a constitution and other founding documents that do give praise and they do, they do also, (laughs) this is so fascinating, because our Original document, the Declaration of Independence that united us all, states our values. In fact, Lincoln said that the Constitution should be read through the lens of the Declaration of Independence. That the Constitution was the how, but the Declaration was the what and why. And so our Declaration, one of the first things it says is, there's a God, he has a law of nature, we want the freedom to pursue the objective values that allow us to be as ultimately free as possible within the confines of God's laws. That's what that whole first paragraph is saying. And that's basically what they're saying. Now, in our case, we're like, okay, but that divine sovereignty thing, you know, the kings take over and it falls apart and, and we don't want one man to be, you know, the ruler over all of us. Although there are many successful stories of, you know, for a time being under, being under a very rich, virtuous ruler is actually a great civilization for people usually historically. But of course the sun inherits and then they become corrupt and then things fall apart. But the idea here is very akin to the ideas that founded America too, that we all have to obey God. And this is what's key is that when these civilizations were working, when they were growing and thriving and peaking, there was still something reigning in the the priest king, and that was God. And he's not just a king king, he's a priest king because he is under God and he has to obey God and he has to administer not just governmentally, but also spiritually to his people. He's a caretaker. He's the moral caretaker that, you know, kind of the spiritual and material caretaker of the people. And he has to answer to God for that. And he has to live within the confines of God's law in order to do that. It was a forward moving idea that built the foundations of civilization and the key principles that underlie it are still true. 
there's still the best way to have the best kind of society. So he goes on later, why, why did Sumerian culture not die? He says, despite the onslaught of barbarian invasions and civil strife, why did this culture go on to form the first civilization in human history? As you may have guessed already, the unifying principle which saved the first civilization from collapsing before it even got the chance to originate was religion. So I want to give you one more quick example as we finish up here of Babylon. And you've heard of the Code of Hammurabi, King Hammurabi. This is, he was 1792 to 1750 BC. He conquered the Sumerian and Semite city-states. They had been falling apart and declining, as all great civilizations do, unfortunately, because of one simple fact. They reject the unifying virtues that you, values that united them in the first place. Uh, and we won't go into that a lot today. We'll focus on that more in a future podcast. But basically the cycle is they adhere to moral laws and codes. Even their leadership adhere to those as well. Eventually they reject their founding virtues and fall apart, become ununited, and then they're prey to a, a stronger civilization that conquers and takes them over. It's pretty much that simple. And those virtues are always transcendent. They're part of the moral framework. They're what reign in people's behavior. And because people reign in their behavior for the good of the society at large, it blesses them individually. They also become more virtuous by, by being more um, disciplined. So Hammurabi came around and he unified, it says, Hammurabi united in a single religious, legal, and political organization all the separate elements of the old Sumerian cultural tradition. The unification was achieved through three religious ideas, the Enema Elish, the Code of Hammurabi, and the Festival of Akitu. Okay, so they had this whole creation story. Every nation has their founding stories, and they usually have a creation myth. In terms of America, we had the Bible and the, that, that creation story. They always have a creation story that tells them who human beings are and who they are in relationship to God and how God wants to work with them on earth and what's expected of them, what their duties are, and what the, virtue, the values are that the society is working toward. So they have this creation story about Marduk, and he overcomes uh, the other gods and goddesses, and he's going to be the god forever for eternity because he, he does that. And the main thing about Marduk is that he destroys chaos and produces order. Mankind served him and offered sacrifices for his intervention so that he may tame the chaos of the natural world and prevent humanity from committing evil actions. Now, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again and again and again. These myths that people tell you, that you see even in YouTube videos, even by people who are supposed to be reputable, that tell you that we don't need God, and God doesn't matter, because the only people that ever really believed in God were, were ancient people, and they only believed in God because they couldn't explain nature, and they just needed someone to intervene so they weren't taken over by a hurricane or whatever the thing was. That they did these rain dances so that their crops would rise and all this kinds of, of nonsense. And that is not what you actually find. When you go into these ancient documents, what you find is people appealing to God to moderate their moral behavior. 
to moderate how they treat themselves and how they treat other people. And you absolutely have to have that in order for there to be something that looks like a civilization because everyone's reigning in their behavior so that you can work together and cooperate and have an economy and have a working government and have a working judicial system. And the only way for all the human beings to unite is if there's not one human being that gets to make up the rules. God made up the rules. And the only way that everybody would get on board with that is if they intuitively knew certain things to be right and certain things to be wrong. And so their conscience was aligning with what this ruler was saying. Otherwise, they would just revolt. And what you find in, for example, communist nations that try to root out any kind of religion or higher law it just creates a vacuum for someone to be in charge and for someone to make up the rules of the of the civilization and that becomes the tyrant dictator and they do make up the rules and hundreds of millions of people die so that is why this is the only way it's going to work this is how it works and this is why the natural moral law is so vital to the lifeblood of of civilization and it's vital to the lifeblood of an individual life and of a family life and we'll talk about that in just a second so marduk destroys chaos he brings order and he creates the rule set by which this nation is going to live okay so i want to just really quickly tell you this is so fascinating how these religious rituals i guess you would say this unifying code held everybody together. And in the Code of Hammurabi, there is a whole bunch of laws that we would absolutely agree with today. You find this over and over and over again. You find it with Solon, you find it, you know, all of these lawgivers align with the natural law and uh, make, better, make better laws. And so people like that, and they're all in agreement because they're all answering to God, even the ruler. And that's the fundamental difference. That's what makes it work. So the, en the Enuma Elish was a document and it told about this whole creation story and some other things that helped the people unite around who they were. It gave them a cultural identity. It did not merely sit in a library for interested scholars. This is Dobbs. And okay, it did not merely sit in a library for interested scholars and priests to read and interpret, it could have been known by every member of the Babylonian Empire because it was dramatized in the religious ritual known as the Festival of Akitu. They would get together every year and they had this, I think it's a 10-day festival. And Tiamat... Let's see. The festival was celebrated over the, over the course of 12 days in which the Mesopotamians believed that this observance ultimately led to the reestablishment of cosmic, theological, and political order. Okay. The ruler had... The Mesopotamians believed that it, it, it created this... Okay. Thus, the application of the idea of God onto the emperor gave the unifying principle of the society. The ruler had to live up to the divine standard of the god Marduk. Each of the days of the festival of Akitu was designed to ensure the emperor and the community understood the importance of practicing the virtues or the values of sacrifice, humility, and servitude. So these were some of their governing, overriding values that the whole civilization was united around. 
On the first three days of the festival, sad poems and hymns were read to the people, which represented the fear of the unknown, and the priests would ask the God to forgive the society for all their sins. Okay, not asking the gods to send rain, asking the gods to intervene in the moral realm. That is so key. On the fourth day, uh, they had the reading of the Enuma Elish to the entire community, which would remind everyone that their emperor was meant to be a just and honest ruler, living up to the standard of their god. Day five featured one of the most remarkable political developments in the entirety of human history. The emperor, who was known as the king of kings, lord of lords, and supreme ruler of all the land, would be stripped of all his power. He would be taken into the head ziggurat, and the head priest would strip him of his crown and material possessions and then slap him across the face. The emperor would recount the sins he had committed over the past year and beg for forgiveness. The head priest would reappoint him his power, placing the crown back on his head and returning his scepter and all his material possessions. Once the emperor had been humiliated and reminded of his duties, it was time for the community of Mesopotamia to recognize his right to rule, as Dawson explained, but if towards the great gods the king was but a servant, towards men he himself was a god. So even the king had to humble himself to a priest who represented God and state all his sins and ask for forgiveness and be um, absolved of those sins and then be given his power back because he was only allowed to be in power if he was morally clean and if he was in compliance with the rules of the gods that everyone was having to answer to. So this is rule of law, even back then. Now that doesn't mean that there weren't certain privileges and all that kind of stuff that the king might have that the common people didn't have, but that was only in alignment with what God had appointed and they expected him to be an honest and just ruler. And when he wasn't, then he didn't get to be the ruler. The festival was designed to prevent the fall, this is Dobbs again, to prevent the fall of human civilization from affecting Babylon by annually having the community and emperor remember the values which created the civilization. The emperor re would recount all the ways he had failed to live up to his role as the servant of Marduk. He would be stripped of his material wealth, would be smacked in the face by an inferior rank. The community in turn would follow their renowned emperor in a procession and acknowledge his sovereignty and superiority to them and thus find sacred duty and purpose in accomplishing their tasks appointed to them by the emperor. So those are some really incredible examples of how this natural law is present in the earliest civilizations that we actually, you know, have record of and we know how they functioned and that it's not just people living and existing in small little family groups, you know, with tribal leaders. This is true bona fide civilization. This is many different cities as city states trading and bartering and sharing government, sharing, you know, their, their judicial system and their economic systems. It's huge. And in order to live in peace, this is what it takes. Shared values. So what have we learned today? Let me just sum this up really quick as we finish up. We are goal-seeking beings who have a hierarchy of values that we intuitively know to be the right things to pursue. The three highest being truth, goodness, and beauty. 
These are an inherent part of the natural law because they are intuitively written on our hearts and we pursue them by default and know deeply how important and worthy they are. They represent the highest values that when pursued make us virtuous, personally and publicly, and they are the values that hold societies and organizations together. We need society to pursue the highest expression of ourselves Individually, we need that, and therefore human beings need societies that recognize and pursue objective values in a unified way. When we tear these down, ignore them or deny them, we are declining and on our way to societal collapse. Personally, in any organization or in a civilization at large, so when we don't pursue values, worthy values individually, we are declining. When we don't pursue them as a society, the society is declining. When we aren't unified in pursuit of objective values, we're splintering and falling apart. This then is one more evidence of not only the truth of the existence of the natural moral law as outside and above us, it also demonstrates how vital to the lifeblood of civilization or any organization is the natural law. It is the bed bedrock that makes everything else work. When we tell ourselves that we can, that, when we tell ourselves that we can make up truth, make up beauty, and make up goodness. That we can make up any or all other values and we'll still somehow be virtuous. We're losing our civilization right in that moment. We must recover it. We can only recover our civilization by restoring the objective truths of the natural law and helping our society once again have worthy unifying objectives. Here's Dobbs again. Humans have passions which seek beauty for itself, an intellect which seeks truth for itself, and a will which strives towards goodness for itself. We will never be satisfied until we contemplate these values. And I would add that we build values and societies which promote the pursuit of these highest values, which must carry with them their own definitions and their own parameters in order to truly be objective. So what does this mean for you? Where can you start? Start by thinking about your family. What do you value? Have you outlined values for your family? Have you outlined values for your own personal life? Have you clarified the values and do you have them up on the wall? Do you communicate them regularly? Do you utilize them to build a family culture and goals and objectives? Do you hold people accountable to those values, yourself included? And as a unified pursuit of those noble values, you become a more virtuous individual and a more virtuous family. Most importantly, are these values that you've chosen worthy of you, of your time, your effort, and your life? Thanks so much for joining me today. Again, you can go over to AudreyRinlessBacher.com and you can get your Truth Seekers uh, starter kits. You can grab my book, The Mission Driven Life. You can join the library and get access to many tools that will help you to live a more principle-centered life. Thank you so much for joining me today and I will see you next time.